Good morning, everyone. Um, so when, when John gave me this date when we were working out when I'm going to be preaching, um, he said the dreaded words to me, you can pick any topic you want. <laughs> um, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a teacher. Um, preaching is something I do sometimes. Um, usually the joke that we have is that I, I teach and pretend to make it preaching, you know, by putting an extra bit of application on the end. <laughs> so it sounds a bit more preachy. Um, so, but I'm, I, I like to be given topics, you know, that, that's what I do. You know, I want you to teach on this topic. I want you to teach this book. I want you to go through this course. Or um, we're doing a series on meeting Jesus. You can have the woman caught in adultery. You know, I like that. So, but when it comes, like, you can pick any topic you want, and suddenly you're faced with the entire Bible. And it's quite big. <laughs> so, now, luckily, um, maybe I shouldn't say luckily, um, <laughs> It's, I was saved by my, actually my own studying this week because um, we, uh, we were going, we're going through, and my course, the, the book that we're going through at the moment is Exodus. And I had to do, on one of these units, I had to do some certain things about the beginning of Exodus. And what we have to do is write these little forums, these little posts, to show that you're actively involved even though you're not there at the college. And I was writing one, and I realized I was writing one. I divided it into three points, and I, as I was writing along, and I, and I, as I finished, oh, I, 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 I wrote at the end, this is good. This looks like a sermon. I have to preach on Sunday. Thank you very much. So my homework back on, Mon on Monday provided the sermon for, for today, which was quite handy, I thought. And so I kind of beefed it up a bit, looked around a bit, and that's what we have. So it's all about a name. It's all in a name. That's the topic we have this morning. And the reason there wasn't a reading is because I've got three of them. And I couldn't pick one. Okay, so I thought, well, I'll just do all three of them at the beginning um, of the sermon. And it's from Exodus chapters 1 to 3. Don't worry, don't worry I'm not reading three chapters. Um, just bits of it. Um, and very hard to see, but that's actually a picture from Prince of Egypt because, you know, it's, it's either that or Ten Commandments that you take photos from for PowerPoints when talking about Exodus. So I went the Prince of Egypt route. So the first one is Exodus 1, 15 to 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named um, Shipra and the other one Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let all the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The next one is Exodus 2, 1 to 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. 
And when she saw that he was a fine child and hid him three months, she hid him three months. When she, when she could hide him no longer, she took him for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent a servant woman, and she took it. When she opened, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Not surprising, really. Um, she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I, shall, I, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you, give you for your, you, for your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. And then the final one is Exodus three thirteen to 17. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I observed you and what had been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites, a, ma a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so we have three little stories at the beginning of Exodus. And I've connected them together because they're all about names or lack of names. You have three stories connected about a name. The first one is about Pharaoh. It's about his diabolical plan um, to remain the God of Israel. And what I mean by that is that Pharaoh was technically a God. He wasn't just a king. The way their system worked, he was an actual living God who ruled Egypt. And because the Israelites were Egyptian subjects, so to speak, they were there in the land, he was technically their god because he was their king. Um, but he was afraid of them because they'd grown too much, so he wanted to keep control over them by killing the children. And then in Exodus chapter 3, we have this story how Yahweh reveals his name to the Israelites, to Moses, and he reveals his plan to become truly the God of Israel by rescuing them. So the God, little g, Pharaoh, wanted to kill the children of Israel to control them. And the God um, wanted to rescue them and bring them to him to worship. And in the middle, you have this little story of a baby being born, Moses being born, who is a deliverer. A deliverer who was both Israelite and Egyptian. And basically acts as this kind of a perfect go-between or advocate. If there was anybody who was going to negotiate the transfer of ownership from the little God to the, to the God, 
it's going to be the person who is both. He's the guy, he's the in-between, he's the advocate. But all of these are about names. As I said, Pharaoh is not just a king, he's technically a god of Egypt and everybody who lives in it. He's very concerned that the Israelites are growing too strong and too numerous. And soon they might take over the country. That had happened in Egypt's past before. Foreigners had come in and taken over the country, so worried that it could happen again. So he seeks to restrict their numbers. Now, this is actually a very common ancient myth, the idea of a god restricting the numbers of humans. You find this in lots and lots of um, stories. The, you know, for example, there are flood stories outside of the Bible. And in the flood stories outside of the Bible, one of the central ideas is there's too many humans. They're making too much noise, and there's too many of them, so the gods send the flood to keep their numbers down. It's all about restricting the numbers of humans. Whereas the opposite you get in the Bible story, the first thing that God says when, after the flood is, go make children. <laughs> he doesn't want to restrict the numbers. So this idea of a God restricting the numbers of the Israelites is a very common theme. That's what gods did. So he's acting like a God. But his plan is fooled, foiled by two women, by, this, by these two midwives, Shipra and Pua, and probably pronounced that completely wrong, they outwit, these two lowly midwives, outwit the god king of Egypt. And the numbers do not decrease like he plans. Instead, they increase. And they personally have increase in families and blessed. And so that's why Pharaoh takes the extreme step of actually going out to finding the sons and killing them. So you have this very big contrast in the story. You have a God king who is not named. He's referred to as the king of Egypt and Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is just a title. It's not a name. So the great adversary, the great God king, the bad guy, doesn't get named. We don't know who he is or who he was. People have guessed what particular pharaoh this might have been. But basically, we have no idea who this person was. It's lost to history. He's an unnamed king of Egypt. Yet, these two midwives, who compared to him are completely unimportant, the text makes very clear who their names are. We know who these people are thousands of years later, but we don't know who pharaoh is. That's the big contrast. The midwives are more important than the god king. We remember the midwives. We don't know who he is. And he, the nameless God King, is tricked by the named midwives. They increase, and he increases too. His problems increase. They don't decrease. So the author here is using the name as naming the people who you you wouldn't expect to get named, and then not naming the person who you think is going to get named. The big bad, bad guy in the story is not revealed. And then you have Moses' birth. Out of all that that's going on with the midwives and killing children, 
Because of that, Moses is put in the basket to escape death, essentially. And here you have another story of the little Israelites outwitting the Egyptians. <laughs> so the Moses survives. And there's even more outwitting going on. I love, I love the kind of trickery in this story. Moses is there in the basket, and then Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses. Oh, I need a, a, a nurse to look after it. Little girl who just happens to be here. Do you know there's a nurse that can look after this baby? Oh, yes, I know, and takes him to the actual mother. <laughs> you know, I love the way that Pharaoh's daughter is completely clueless, <laughs> and this little girl is completely tricking her into actually giving her own baby back so that now that Moses will be safe. It's a wonderful story. The, the, again, the Israelites outwitting the clever Egyptians. Um, but because of that, like I said, Moses is this unique figure who is both an Israelite and an Egyptian. He is nursed by his own mother in an Israelite house, but he grows up as a prince of Egypt. So he is both. Quite a few characters are named, or not named, sorry, <laughs> in this story. There's quite a few characters. You have Moses' father, Moses' mother, Moses' sister. You have Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh's daughter's maids, essentially, and Moses. Moses is the only one that is named in this story. Everyone else is just who they are. You don't know their actual name. But you do know their names. That's the strange thing of this story. We know the name of Moses' father, mother. And we definitely know the name of Moses' sister. It's Miriam. And that's a couple of chapters later you get this information. But when they're introduced in the story, the author doesn't tell you their name. They're just this unnamed people. And then Moses alone gets a name in this story. So, the, so he's using names in this sense to highlight Moses as the, as the main character and the really important one that you need to focus on. All these people are making the story happen. Yes, and it's very interesting, very fun trick story going on, but Moses is the highlighted one. And what his name means is highlighted. Drawn out. Drawn out of the Nile, which of course is the major symbol of Egypt. And that is going to be his role. He is going to be the one who draws out the people from Egypt in the same way that he is drawn out of the symbol of Egypt, the Nile. So the author, again, is using these names to highlight what's going on. Then we have the final story, Yahweh revealing his name. So God is having this conversation via the burning bush with Moses, Quite a bit has already gone on. We didn't read all of it. We have the, the take off your feet, um, all this who are talking going on. I've seen, heard what's going on in Egypt. I've heard the cry of my people suffering. So all of that has been established already, that he wants to send Moses to Egypt to rescue his people. He's going to be the chosen representative. Again, he's perfectly placed because he's both. He's Israelite and Egyptian. But Moses says, you know, quite a long time has gone since the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How are the people going to 
know that you've sent me? What name shall I give them to prove that I've been sent by you? And that's where you get the famously God replying, I am who I am. Which basically means, like, you can also, I will be who I will be. It's, it's kind of this strange, it doesn't, yeah, it's this Hebrew word that can mean quite a few things. And, and it, the idea is that it's self-sufficiency. Is I am. I created you. I create everything. I need nothing. I am. That's all it is. I am. I am sent you. Or as the best guess of how you pronounce it, because we don't know exactly how to pronounce God's name, is Yahweh as the best guess. So, and he says, Yahweh has sent you. I am sent you. And this will be my name forever. That's what you and your children and the rest of the Israelites will call me from now on, I am, Yahweh. And he promises to rescue Abraham's descendants and to bring them out to the land that he promised them, that they can worship him. And so the contrast here is not in the story, it's in the first one. The contrast here is between the God, the little God over Israel, and the actual God of Israel. The little God over Israel is unnamed forever. But the God of Israel is named for all generations. We know exactly God's name because of this conversation. Like even now today, we know the name of God because of the conversation that Moses had with him at the burning bush. He reveals his name to Moses. And the name itself, like I said, the meaning shows this contrast. Pharaoh was threatened by Israel. And so he needed to reduce the numbers of Israel in order to control them and remain their God. Yahweh is I am who I am. He needs nothing. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't even need worship. He doesn't need the Israelites to be rescued and worship. That doesn't benefit him in that sense. He doesn't need it to happen. Instead, he chooses to do it. He doesn't need to. He chooses because of his compassion and because of his promises that he made to Abraham. Pharaoh needed something to happen. Yahweh doesn't need it to happen. Which shows you, and it's it's not going to be this particular Pharaoh, it's going to be probably a couple of Pharaohs down the line (laughs) where you have the actual confrontation between the little God and the actual God. But this story is is setting up that it's not going to be a fair fight. Um, The unnamed God of Egypt who needs the worship of Israel and kills to keep it. He was outwitted by a bunch of midwives. Versus the named God of Israel, Yahweh who needs nothing but saves his people because of compassion and his promises to Abraham. This is not going to be a fair fight. And this is set up right in the middle. This little God whose name we don't know, who is outwitted by a couple of women, versus the one who needs absolutely nothing. And in between, Moses. The Israelite who became an Egyptian. 
the one who is drawn out of the Nile and will be the, the vehicle in which God will draw out his people from Egypt. No, of course, that's all the technical side. <laughs> that's a beefed up version of the post that I put on the forum on Monday. But this is a sermon. <laughs> you know, and as I said, like I usually do, I get a teaching and then put some application on the end. Um, to make it into a sermon. So then I had to think, okay, this is all very interesting, Andy. This is great. This, is, this tells us a lot of what's going on in the book of Exodus. But how can these stories help us? Um, how can these help us in the same way that God helped the Israelites all those years ago? Well, what made, when I thought about it, when, in terms of Pharaoh... We all have our own pharaohs. Um, I don't mean we have gods as taskmasters over us making us slaves, but we all have opposition. We all have something or someone or events or things that are trying to stop us in our calling, in our walk with Jesus, in our everyday church life. In the same way that that Pharaoh was essentially stopping Israel being Israel. The hope, I think, that we can get in our lives today about this story is that Pharaoh doesn't get a name. The great adversary is unnamed because he's not important. He's significant in the story, but in perspective and compared to God, he's unimportant. He's outwitted by those who are below him. And he will always be powerless compared to the one whose name is forever. And I think this story can give us hope. It's similar to that idea, of course, in the New Testament, he who is with us is greater than he that is in the world. The idea that whatever opposition we face can never compare to who's behind us in that sense. The the one who's got our back. The one who's God we actually worship and serve. So the the posting was all about your calling. And that's kind of the topic as I was doing it in the week. So in terms of what God has called you to do, the idea is the one who called you is always going to be bigger than anyone else who tries to stop you in that calling. The one who's actually making you do it is always going to be bigger and better and faster and stronger and greater than anybody who else gets in the way. So it's that hope, who we've got behind us, (laughs) who we've got calling us into our walk with Jesus. What I noticed with Moses' story is how Moses' name was who he was. Literally, he was drawn out, and that's what he was called, but he became Moses as well. He was Moses, but he also became Moses. When he drew the people out of Israel, he became himself. He became the person he was named at a couple of months old. He truly became Moses. And this made me think of one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, That of Onesimus in Philemon, the slave that ran away, meets Paul, becomes a Christian, 
And then Paul, and Onesimus' name actually means useful or beneficial. And so then Paul writes back to his um, slave master and says, Onesimus has now become useful. Onesimus has become Onesimus. <laughs> he's changed. He's different. It's like Onesimus only became Onesimus when he met Jesus. He became who he really was. And I think that also gives us hope. The idea when we respond to that calling or we respond when God asks us to do things in the same way that Moses did, here I am, then we can become who we are, if that makes sense. I, I actually started to become Andy when I started teaching because that's what God called me to do. So in some way, I wasn't Andy until that point. <laughs> Even though I'd been Andy the rest of my life <laughs> up to that point, I didn't really become who I was until I started doing what God wanted me to do. We become ourselves in him. And then lastly, and most importantly, God. <laughs> I am who I am. It's, did I do it? Yes, I did. It's all in a name. God responded to Israel's cry. He remembered his promise to Abraham. And he wanted to bring Israel out into the desert to worship him. And that made me think the response to all of that, the response to the calling, the response to the defense, the response for the rescuing, the salvationing, the becoming who we are in Christ. That response to that relationship is worship. But I, the story is chronological in the sense that God saved them and then they worshipped him. It wasn't they worshipped him and then God saved them. That's kind of a Pharaoh relationship going on, not what God was doing. There was no way that Israel was going to worship their way out of a situation, if that makes sense. Um, the only time, the only way they can be rescued if God did it. They could not make him do it through worship or serving any, or anyway. That was a response. We can't bribe God with our worship. That's the big message. There's a word for that. It's called idolatry. <laughs> you know, you often we think of idolatry as actually worshipping idols, i.e. physical things. But the idea of idolatry is worshipping a divinity so you can get what you want. Um, in the ancient world, people worshipped, for example, fertility gods and goddesses so that they will be fertile, so that it will rain, so that their plants will grow, so that their sheep would make more sheep, i.e., they're only worshipping that god because they can get something out of them. And that's not worship. Worship is a response, not give me. <laughs> We don't worship to get stuff. We worship because God is God and is worthy of it. So Israel could not bribe God into rescue them through worship in the same way that we cannot bribe God with our worship. Yet he chooses to do it anyway. <laughs> he chooses to listen. He chooses to re remember the promises. He chooses to rescue us. 
And then he asks for our worship, our service to him. He asks us to join him. He asks us to work alongside with him in his kingdom. Yet he is, I am who I am. He doesn't need it. God doesn't need our help. If God needed our help, he wouldn't be God. So God doesn't need any of us. (laughs) He doesn't need us to lead worship or preach or to do any of the things that we do for church or for his kingdom. He doesn't actually need it because he's I am who I am. The only one in the entire universe who doesn't need any help asks us for help. Not based on need, but based on response, on relationship. Help me. Join me. I don't need it. I want it. It's a very, very different relationship than Pharaoh and Israel. And that, I think, is the foundation of both our worship to God and our service to him. It isn't about us. It's not about what we can get or what we can do. It's not about what can I add to the kingdom of God. Because he doesn't need anything added. <laughs> he could do it all himself. It's it, like Moses says, what can I do? I can't even speak properly. And God reminds him, well, who made people speak in the first place? So does that matter? No. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you can't talk properly because I'm sending you and I made people talk in the first place. It's ne- it was never about Moses' abilities. Even though he's in a perfect place, Egyptian or Israelite, that actually doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things because God is sending him. It was all about God's. It's always about God's glory, God's abilities, his purposes, not ours. Which actually also, I think, gives us our confidence. Because then suddenly, it's like the weight is taken off of our shoulders. Suddenly, it's not, what must I do for the kingdom of God? Suddenly, it's not like, I have to do this, I have to do this. God needs me to do this. No, he doesn't. He asks you to do it. And that's completely different. He asks for our worship. He doesn't need it. He asks for our service. He doesn't need it. And I think that can give us confidence to actually truly worship him and to actually truly serve him because it's not about me. Because I know what I'm like. And I know I can't do it. I know my abilities are not enough. But if it's not about me, it's about him, then that gives me confidence to do what he asks me to do. So that's what the hope, I think, that we get from these stories, that our God is greater than anything that comes in between us (laughs) and what he wants for us. That in Christ and doing what we do for God, we actually become who we are. We become ourselves in him. And actually, when it comes down to it, it's not about us anyway. (laughs) It's about him, his abilities, his calling, that he asks us and invites us to join with.
Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that even though this is a huge graphic story about your salvation of the Israelites millennia ago, and it's great to look back and see what you have done in history, but I want to thank you that this is not ancient history, this is today. That what we see in the book of Exodus, what we see in the life of Moses, what we see in these midwives is true for us too. That you are the same God. That you have our back. That, the, you, that we become who we truly are in you. And you ask us, invite us to join. You don't need us. You want us. And that gives us the confidence to walk with you truly. So please, Lord, I ask that as we go through this week, that you would remind us of these things. Remind us that you have us back, that we are you. We are truly you in, in you, which are you truly us in you, sorry. And that you are asking and inviting us to join us, and that gives us every confidence to do what you want, for us to do what you want in our lives. In your name, amen.